and a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. The sun is shining and it's summer officially in a couple of days' time. And for many, the holiday period. I'll be continuing right up until the week before Christmas and back in the later part of January. But plenty of programming to fill in while I'm away. And don't forget, not only on your radio at 8.55am or 3CR Digital, but online through 3cr.org.au, either streaming or podcasting. All instructions on our homepage. But to today, Dr Helen Rosenbaum, the campaign coordinator with the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, to fill us in with the latest news, some definitely positive, as countries and grassroots organisations fight back against plans to mine the ocean beds with unforeseen consequences. On the program last week, Dr Yara Hawawi presented the 2022 Edward Said Memorial Lecture for Australia. So today we'll hear the question and answer which followed her lecture with a FOPA, Australia Friends of Palestine Association Chair, Edie Branby, fielding the audience questions to Yara. Then the Malaysian elections held on the 19th of November. Two Malaysian Australians, Peter Boyle from Socialist Alliance and Lee Tan, environmental consultant and activist, with their interpretations of the results and the possible future for Anwar Ibrahim as the latest Prime Minister of Malaysia. But we mustn't forget Mr Kevin Healy. Let's see what sort of a election week he's had. A week, Jan, listener, when how cruel, how heartless, how ageist the Victorian people, when we would have thought the last thing we'd want to do is disappoint an old man. No, no, not me. So spare a thought for poor old Lord Rupert of Wapping, because no person, young or old, could convince the electorate of just how evil is the pejorative Dan. A decade of exponential warnings, and this time, like last time, how good for all of us would be the lobster with a mobster. While the electorate seemed to be paraphrasing Peggy Lee, the, the pejorative Dan or the lobster with a mobster, is that all there is? Which brings me to something I wasn't quite aware of at the time, just how bad the 70s were. Not Lord Rupert's 70s, of course, the 1970s. See, the Caring Business Class and the Caring Business Class Party tell us the socialist Caring Business Class relationship, or what's left of it, will take us back to the 70s, and that is bad, bad, bad. Well, yes, the socialists got elected in 1972 and did still three years later when Her Most Gracious Majesty and our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, were forced to get rid of them and bring us common sense and progressive government in Malcolm Wage Freezer and the caring business class lot. And the lobster with a mobster asserted with his in-depth wisdom that reinventing a state-owned state electricity commission, an SEC, well, SEC might, in fact, whatever, reinventing would also take us back to the 70s. 
so dreadful with the 70s that he seemed to have forgotten the SEC was still in public hands until the 90s, when Lobster with predecessor Jeff Foot in mouth brought us all the advantages of the private sector we've since so enjoyed. Jeff, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, totally neutral election analyst, who, after taking everything into account, concluded, surprisingly, the pejorative Dan was even more evil than even Lord Rupert and the Lobster with imagined. Poor Jeff, poor Lord Rupert. The pejorative Dan's evil even ran to that most anti-social attack on democracy, voting early expressed in an interview Friday as the federal caring business class party deputy supremo Susan Lees and Dregs told us it was shameful that the pejorative Dan had voted early. And in the consistency department we've all come to love with these people, Susan also criticised the State Integrity Commission largely not holding public hearings. Uh, but the interviewer butted. Your party is the main reason the proposed federal body will largely not hold public hearings. Uh, no, no, that was different. Must say, as a satirist, I do love these consistencies. They're a gift. Like her caring business class relations sister, Michaelia Koch, the workers, who said the state issues and could not be reflected onto the federal caring business class party. Our disaster was down to totally different reasons. Love them. The Bolting the Stable Door Award to yet another privatised success story, Medi Bank the Profits Private Be Damned, for assuring us no more private details had been stolen since millions were stolen. <laughs> Very reassuring that. Medibank, the profits private be damned, your bolting the stable door award is on its way. On a positive note, losing an estimated 10 million customers' records earned executives more than 7.3 million in bonuses. The, the mind boggles at what they might get if they did their job. Obviously, the 7.3 mil plus will be a big incentive to lose even more records next year. Another bunch of great responsible corporates, the much-loved financial institutions, the government has a bill to legislate a few more of the recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Rip-Offs Commission, which found the corporate's practices left a bit ability by financial institutions, with the government agreeing with the Greens to include $1.1 million in fines for executives breaking the law, leading to much lobbying by the usual suspects and, phew, thank goodness, the government has agreed to rethink all this as the responsible bank spokesperson Anna Blight on Workers, a former socialist state big supremo, showing just how socialist the banks are, or conversely, just how socialist Anna is, Anna pointed out the legislation could have unintended consequences, a phrase the great corporates are forced to point out regularly. Unintended consequences, Anna. Absolutely, we, we could get sprung. Clearly, the much-revered financial institutions would not oppose the bill if it erased unnecessary impediments like penalties for ripping off. The terminalious people face penalties for opposing progressive corporates attempting to do their bit for all of us on little penalties like having their culture blown up and bulldozed. But then, given they are terranilious people, that doesn't matter. Although, through the goodness of their generous hearts and in response to the proverbial hitting the fan over blowing up thousands of years of history and culture, 
the great resource giants tell us they will consult various people on equal terms before they blow up and destroy their history and culture. And the minister for all this, Tania Plibber's sick environment, decried all that destruction and said she was taking action. Like approving giant gas and fertiliser projects at ancient rock carvings on Barra Peninsula, but no problems because the responsible resource giants have assured her they can move the rock carvings safely and responsibly so they can use the Terranulius land in a profitable way rather than have it just sitting there earning nothing, except perhaps the odd tourist dollar. And the industry said a resource super-duper of seed profits tax would be a disaster that would... Being all of us, showing how their sole concern is all of us. Even though a little bit of an explanation on how them paying tax would increase, but, but no, no, they know what they're talking about. Like Santos us the profits, getting into the industries and Tania's new spirit of cooperation with Terranulia's people, well, let's be accurate, non-people, telling the federal court interfering none of their business Tiwi Islanders opposing an offshore gas project with a pipeline traversing their oceans were not relevant persons. Exactly, they're terrenulous and have no right to object, as it appeals against an earlier decision that the Tiwi Islanders did have some relevance to the land and sea they have lived on for eons, and Santosa should have consulted them. But as Santos has pointed out, the people, or sorry, non-people, affected by the little bit of extraction are not relevant persons. That earlier decision failed to take into account the relevance and rights of Santos as the prophet, and they so care about, and will so care about, until the gas runs out. And just because Santosas has a history of offshore projects causing a little bit of massive pollution is no excuse for ludicrous claims that it might cause a, a little bit of massive pollution. They care about the environment, that's why they want to put more CO2 and methane into it. The traditional landowners had many connections with the sea country that qualified as a relevant interest, the islanders silk argued, including as a food source, cultural responsibilities over the area and totemic significance. What nonsense. That silly argument ignores the most totemic significance of all, corporate profit. The more sensible silk for Santosas made the most sensible point that expecting the company to consult with the affected Tiwi Islanders was unworkable. Unworkable. Yes, they might object. The environment community minded great US of resource giant Shabas the Prophet's Ron has shown how much it cares about True Blue Aussie by generously offering True Blue Aussie as a sink for Asia's carbon dioxide offering to bury it, presumably at a small cost, in the famous ostrich solution to climate change if there is such a thing. Burying your head in the sand was one of its selling points for its offshore gas project at pristine, ecological, fragile, well, formerly pristine now, I think, Barrow Island off western True Blue Aussie, but unfortunately, several years into production, it's still having a little bit of trouble getting the burying your head, head in bit to work, and thus, despite its pre-approval guarantees, it's sadly releasing all that CO2 and methane into the environment, making its generous offer on True Blue Aussie's behalf to accept Asia's pollution even more generous, apart from that minor fact that it doesn't actually work. Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor 
attempted to bring balance and neutrality to the Supreme Court, showing its decisions like banning abortion were balanced and neutral. Well, this week the court ruled that poor Donald had a hand over his tax returns to an inquiry into his tax returns, even though for six years he's been unable to hand them over because they're being audited. Although in fairness, after six years we might question the efficiency of the auditor, and it's not like Donald's trying to hide anything, he's promised time and again that he'll produce them. We know some cynics have suggested he stacked the Supreme Court. Well... After it ruled against him, he bemoaned the decision, creates a terrible precedent for future presidents, the greatest terrible precedent ever, ever, and accused the court, direct quote, of becoming nothing more than a political body with our country paying the price. A political body? Can, can anyone spot the irony in the Bill Update as the crossbenchers who support most of it with great moral righteousness just want to remove any clause which could have the aforementioned unintended consequences like making life difficult for caring employers because they understand the dire social consequences of evil unions having some sort of rights or involvement in caring business class relations. Finally, a couple of thought-provoking letters in the Spencer Street Foul Facts No Longer Foul Facts Daily. One very sensible proposal that Her Majesty's Theatre should be changed to His Majesty's Theatre. Someone actually sat down and considered that important enough to write a letter about. The fact that the writer came from East Brighton might be some sort of excuse. And next to that... We need respite from elections, potholes, incessant rain and floods. Let me share a beautiful story from Slovenia. There was a huge blitz against drink driving. Drivers who registered 0% were rewarded with tickets to, wait for it, listener, wait for it, to the police orchestra concert. What a novel approach. Listener, I would have thought that would drive you to drink. No pun intended. Good afternoon. And once again, many thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy. And tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, it's the long-running City Limits program with Kevin and friends. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Crime Scene Australia, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic tale? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head and making it real history. It's funny and it's dark, it's supernatural. We're going to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from 6 o'clock. Carol Carpenny from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know, you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. 
To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today we revisit the push by corporations to begin deep sea mining in many parts of the world, particularly the Pacific Ocean. And it's a welcome back to Tuesday Home Time to Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, who's the campaign coordinator of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign based in Australia. And Helen is a long time environmental and human rights activist. Well, today, Helen, we're looking at how your favourite companies, the metals company, is doing financially as it continues to drive to mine the seabed. But there are favourable outcomes in recent months in the fight to prevent what many see as disasters awaiting the oceans if companies such as the metals company get their way. What's the good news you have to report? and we'll get on to metals later, but this relates to the countries opposing deep-sea mining. You know, the most startling one in the last the last one that was France is amazing because France just gone for an outright ban. They haven't pussy-footed around wording around a precautionary pause or a moratorium like some of the others. They've just said, no, nah, we're going for a ban. I had a meeting today with this woman who's the head of the French committee for the IUCN for French Polynesia, or the French Pacific Territories, and they're so excited. They were were so caught off guard and surprised as well. And how are you going Mm. with the other Pacific nations? Well, I think there's five now that have called for a, a moratorium and some Latin American countries as well. And, you know, I guess we can consider New Zealand to be a Pacific nation. It's much more kind of situated in the Pacific context than perhaps we are in Australia. They've come out um, calling for a conditional moratorium, which is something we really support because it's not a time-bound moratorium saying, well, you know, can't do it for the next five years, which is kind of meaningless. It's a moratorium based on certain um, terms and conditions being met before deep sea mining should be allowed to occur. And that's something that we've advocated strongly along with the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. That was a great outcome as well. And uh, Germany has has come out sort of also saying that until more is known about the deep sea environment and the environmental impacts, deep sea mining should not go ahead. And Germany has a lot to lose, actually, because they have industries that are keen to supply the deep sea mining 
industry itself. So for them to come out as a responsible player is quite remarkable as well. And of course we have to reiterate that it's not just the Pacific Ocean, they've got their eyes on other oceans as well. Yes, I mean companies do and nations do. Another one that's really keen to go is Norway and its territorial waters and Norway came out against you know, criticising uh, President Macron's stance, um, you know, not, not surprisingly. And India is another really keen player. They're, they're really keen to go in the Indian Ocean. And uh, right now also um, Portugal's in an interesting situation. Uh, the Azores regional government has jurisdiction over the sea area of the Azores where there's hydrothermal vents and um, mining companies are keen to mine there and in particular our um, our old friend um, Nautilus in its current incarnation as the Deep Sea Mining Finance Corporation may be pursuing licences there. They, they certainly applied for licences some time ago and the process for granting the licences was put on hold until the Zors Regional Government came out with a position on deep sea mining and we're, we're watching keenly to see what which way the Zors Government goes and whether in fact it is um, Deep Sea Mining Finance Corporation that's, that's pursuing those hydrothermal vents in the same way as they did in Papua New Guinea um, in the guise of Nautilus, which went bankrupt. So what you're saying is that they've swapped the same people that were running Nautilus are now running the, the corporation. Is that a fact? There's a small number of people that um, just keep switching um, positions amongst these companies. Uh, Deep Green, now it's um, now called the Metals Company. We we know Jared Barron and some other key founders of Nautilus and some of the staff ended up in Deep Green and some of them have stayed with the Metals Company. A couple hived off and they formed another company called Tuvalu Circular Metals. They were ambitious to conduct deep sea mining under the sponsorship of Tuvalu. Tuvalu rescinded that sponsorship after they became more aware of what deep sea mining was, you know, likely to bring to the Pacific Ocean in terms of impacts. And yes, deep sea mining finance corporation, we've constantly kept an eye on them because we weren't sure to what extent they still own the licenses that uh, Nautilus were granted in Papua New Guinea. So even though Nautilus went bankrupt, those licenses have never been inactivated. And that's a, that's a goal of our partners in Papua New Guinea. They're, they're working to uh, have the government ban deep sea mining there and to cancel the licenses that were issued to Nautilus. And the... International Seabed Authority, not your favourite organisation. What have they been up to? Oh, well, the ISA uh, rushed through approvals for their buddies at the metals um, company to run uh, a deep sea mining trial, a pilot program. So the metals company doesn't know what the impacts of its operations are going to be and they kind of admitted this by stating they wanted to 
run an in situ experiment. Um, that's not their wording. They call it a, a deep sea mining pilot. And they've been using this as a way to try and gain investment to the company, which they badly need if they're really going to get anything off the ground. And Michael Lodge over at the International Seabed Authority, he's the Secretary General of the International Seabed Authority. He's long had um, very cosy relations with Nautilus uh, and Jared Barron going back, you know, a decade or more. And uh, a very neat expose in the New York Times just really tracked back through confidential documents that they managed to get hold of, um, just the favouritism that was granted to Nautilus in terms of licensing that was not granted to other companies. So not only was that bad in terms of transparency to the general public and to civil society that these things were granted secretly, um, special sort of privileges and licences and access to um, particular zones for mining in the Clarion-Clipson zone of the Pacific Ocean. But I can't imagine that other mining companies were very happy with, with those goings on. But the, the latest shenanigans they've been up to is that they uh, rush through a, an approvals process for the metals company to run this pilot um, deep sea mining operation. And uh, in effect, this is actually deep sea mining. So we can say that deep sea mining has now occurred in the clarion Clipston zone of the Pacific Ocean. And this approval for this test was uh, rushed through without the consultation that the ISA is by its own regulations um, mandated to undertake. And so member countries of the ISA have been very critical about this lack of process and um, it certainly doesn't augur well because, you know, are they going to do the same again for when they actually issue a real commercial long-term 30-year mining lease to the metals company or to, to any other company? So... We hope the fact that this has become um, controversial at the International Seabed Authority amongst member nations will shine a light on uh, more of a light. <laughs> I mean, it was it was very well and clearly exposed by the New York Times. But Michael Lodge seems to be Teflon coated. Like I don't know, nothing seems to stick. He hasn't been held to account for these irregular and inappropriate relationships with um, the metals company, with Deep Green, with Nautilus. And we exposed this first in our report titled Why the Rush, Seabed Mining in the Pacific, oh, about three years ago. And our cover, the cover of that report features Michael Lodge with a deep green hard hat on, which on launching uh, an exploration tour, uh, nodule mining in the Pacific. So we thought that cover photo, uh, which was came from a tweet of Michael Lodges himself, we thought that cover photo said it all. But it's taken a few years for um, the mainstream media to actually pick pick up that angle and and expose it further. The other companies must know what's going on. With the favouritism, are they arcing up? 
Yeah, we don't really know what the other companies are, are thinking. Uh, we don't have really, uh, we don't really communicate with them. Uh, they certainly haven't released any public statements on it because I guess they just don't want to cause any consternation about the the ISA. And um, but they must be having questions as we do as to the appropriateness of the ISA as a regulatory body. Uh, although their concerns would be for vested financial interests, while while our concerns are for the, you know, the damage that could happen to the environment and the um, lack of consideration of impacts on coastal and island communities. Can we talk a bit more about the International Seabed Authority? When it was established, and how well it does its job, or how well doesn't it do its job? come under fire from all sorts of quarters really for its lack of transparency. When the ISA meetings uh, are run, there's, there's different levels of meetings. The full ISA council includes all the member nations. So that's 165 member countries plus the EU. And it sounds like there's no real protocol followed and there's a lot of discretion given to the ISA secretariat, um, which I guess comes down again to the Secretary General to decide what gets discussed and what does not get discussed. And member countries have to be very assertive to gain uh, floor, uh, floor time to to raise issues of concern to them. And, of course, the Secretary-General has been clean to close down discussion on anything that critiques the way in which the ISA works. But last year, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature considered uh, a resolution and then passed it on deep-sea mining So this was the first time that society at large, and it's still not like a really wide cross-section of civil society, but at least it got the conversation out of a small number of countries and governments and us NGOs who are very intimately involved with this issue into a a much wider range of uh, government agencies and a wider range of civil society who may have, you know, they all have a common concern for biodiversity and conservation, but maybe never have heard of deep sea mining before. So it was a quite an achievement to gain a resolution from the IUCN, which calls for a moratorium on deep sea mining and uh, lays out a set of conditions that we really support around what kinds of information gaps need to be plugged uh, before we can even consider this this industry and also looks calls for research into the need for deep sea mining because of course the industry proponents argue that it's vital in order to supply the metals required for a transition to a carbon neutral economy but that's very much in dispute and so the IUCN, that was one of the um, one aspect of the, their resolution, was um, asking for research to actually be done into whether there is a need for for deep sea mining to provide these metals. And the third aspect of their resolution was the reform of the International Seabed Authority, because they stated it was 
clearly not fit for purpose because of the strong bias towards industry and the lack of transparency and, yeah, the unaccountability, even though it's a United Nations kind of a United Nations body. It was set up under the United Nations Convention, the Law of the Sea, but it's not accountable to any other United Nations body. So there's a real yeah, governance problem with you know, this this body um being able to and the Secretariat being able to push through its own agenda with with a, a total lack of accountability anywhere and they don't feel themselves to be accountable to civil society, although civil society observers uh, have been growing in number. More and more organisations have been asking for approval as observers and have been getting it. So they have been coming under more scrutiny. But as observers, uh, civil society organisations can't, really, well, they have no voting rights for a start. They can make interjections and uh, presentations to the uh, full council, but they don't have any access to other decision-making bodies of the IFA, uh, such as the a very important one is the Legal and Technical Commission, where all the applications for deep-sea exploration are uh, considered and approved the environmental impact assessments um, such as the one that was rushed through uh, the approval was rushed through for the the metals company environmental impact assessment for the for the its test its deep sea mining test that was a task uh, of the LTC the legal and technical commission so that's a very behind closed doors Entity and um, this latest rush through approval show that it's even behind closed doors for the members of the LTC because it was some we don't even know it's not clear how this approval was given for the environmental impact assessment that allowed the test to to proceed. Is there transparency in the funding of the International Seabed Authority? Well, one thing that is related to, to funding, however, is that the way it's set up means this regulatory body will be obtaining funds through the granting of licences for seabed mining. So that sets up a dilemma right from the start in that you've got a body that's supposed to oversee and regulate um, deep sea mining and ensure it doesn't cause harm to the environment. But at the same time, if it doesn't let deep sea mining go ahead, there's a whole pocket of money it's it's not going to have. So, yeah, it, it itself has a vested interest in the industry proceeding and, and not in allowing time for proper process and for proper consideration and proper discussion of whether in fact this industry should proceed. Because that's a discussion that society at large is yet to have. Um, from my perspective, that's why the IUCN resolution is very significant because this is the first time that uh, an organisation that has representatives from 
governments and from civil society all around the world have got together to consider deep sea mining and they said it needs to be paused. You know, this this needs to stop um, right now while we gather more information and that the ISA isn't in its current form isn't fit for purpose. It's not the right structure and the right hasn't got the right processes to enable the rest of the world to feel that they can have faith in uh, proper oversight of this industry. Can I take you back to that deep sea mining test operation? What was the results of it? We don't know. And I think the fact that at the same time that they completed this this test run, they um, TMC also had delivered its uh, final quarterly financial report for the year, and it participated the very next day also in what they call a fireside chat with one of their uh, friendly finance companies or some kind of finance broker company organises these finance chats with various entities and it was a bit of an opportunity for Jared Barron to run some public relations messaging and um, but for those of us who attended and tried to ask questions about the tests we got no answers and um, it's very untransparent and orchestrated meetings and also the meeting at which the quarterly report is delivered is totally orchestrated so no one can see what questions are being asked and by whom and whether they've been answered and certainly we didn't have any of our questions answered and we're very keen to know exactly what they found because they've been promoting that this monitoring is the single most important activity for, as Jared Barron, the CEO of the metal company, um, states, to de-risk the deep sea mining operation it wishes to undertake in the Nauru-sponsored area next year. But the fact that they haven't been able to come out and state what it was that they precisely monitored and what conclusions they can draw, you know, just puts the whole the whole operation under sort of a cloud really and they presented an outline of what they what they want to achieve at the recent ISA meeting and they were unable to answer there any specific questions from scientists who were present at the meeting and other interested parties um, about technical aspects and about the key environmental aspects that are of concern which are relating to the pollution that would be generated from, the, they call it the return water, it's the water from the uh, the rocks that they bring up on board a support vessel, the rocks get a bit of a washdown and then water is returned at about a thousand metres under the sea. That's the source of concern in terms of that water could contain toxic, well, metals that can become toxic in food chains. And they weren't able to answer any any questions about the spread and the toxicity about that um, pollution, nor were they able to really say anything concrete about what happened on the actual seabed itself in terms of how damage the seafloor was after their attempt to, to mine the nodules and 
the plume, the basically a dust storm that gets um, churned up on the on the seabed as the mining machine collects these nodules. It's basically dredging the top layer of this soft mud, and that's anticipated to have quite an impact on the organisms that live on the seabed, and also can spread further beyond you know. You know, up to hundreds of kilometres, modelling has shown, has predicted that it can spread beyond the actual mining site. So, yeah, we're dubious that the test run has added anything to the body of knowledge <laughs> around the impacts of deep sea mining. And uh, one, one prediction I've made right, right from the start is that these, this company is such a cowboy outfit. It's impossible to believe they could get the technology right and um, actually pull off a test run without complications um, such as operational failures um, of their equipment. So, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see on that front. Helen, you've been monitoring etc. on land mining companies for many years. Is this unusual the way that these proposed deep sea mining companies are treating the general public and also countries with their secrecy and their sidestepping questions? Does that normally happen? Oh, well, (laughs) I guess there's mining companies and mining companies and under pressure terrestrial mining companies have had to lift their game because we can see, you know, the public at large can see what impacts they have and the communities uh, can protest those and especially now with social media and other technologies that allow, you know, visualisations, you know, satellite imaging of, of the impacts, it's very hard for them to, to hide what they're doing. But deep sea mining offers more opportunity for bad actors to be bad and um, than terrestrial miners. And, yeah, of course, there's terrible stuff happening with man-based mines all over, all over the world still. But, yeah, m- many of them have signed up to responsible mining codes and uh, have engaged in quite constructive consultations with various NGOs and community organisations. But, you know, personally, I think... Any company that's bottom dollar comes from extraction and the continuation of a whole extractivist society where we just consume and dig up, consume and dig up. You know, they've got a a fairly narrow agenda and set of interests, really. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Helen. And I've been speaking with dedicated, long-time environmental and human rights activists Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, who's the campaign coordinator with the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. 
Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at ether.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. On the program last week, we heard Dr. Yara Harawi, Palestinian academic and writer, delivering the 2022 Edward Said Memorial Lecture. It's an annual event presented in Australia by Australian Friends of Palestine Association. It's based in Adelaide, South Australia. Today, the Q&A which followed the lecture, the person asking the questions on behalf of the viewing audience, is the chair of AFOPA, Edie Branbury. Is there a peace camp anymore in Israel? No. I think the, the recent elections, or rather the series of elections over the last few years, have shown that when it comes to, to the Palestinians, Israeli society is actually not divided on the matter. Uh, out of sight, out of mind is the best that we can hope for. But in terms of an organised uh, an organised political movement to end the occupation, to end apartheid, that's something that does not exist within Israeli society, sadly. And we're seeing Israeli society move further and further towards the right. Although I do think we have to be careful when talking about right and left in a settler colonial society. I'm not sure if one is better than the other. Can you expand on the concept of finding joy in activism, not falling into despair? Yeah, and that's something that I that I struggle with and I know a lot of my comrades struggle with. And so, you know, reading the likes of Sylvia Federici I found incredibly important in how can we and this, you know, speaks to not only Palestine organizing, but organizing 
in a time where we're facing massive inequality, people struggling even to live a half-decent life, paying rent and bills and facing climate change and increased oppression of women across the world. It's very easy to slip into despair. And so I think in these spaces where we do find camaraderie, where we do organize together, it's incredibly important to prioritize joyfulness, to prioritize love and, uh, and friendship in these spaces, because we can't organize, uh, we can't mobilize on despair. We can't bring people to the streets just on a narrative of, uh, of depression and a narrative of total negativity. You know, we have to maintain the notion that our liberation is inevitable. Otherwise, what's the point? And so I think the likes of uh, Sylvia Federici and other writers who've written about love in politics and joy in politics is incredibly important reading for all of us in, in organising spaces. Another one from Nasser Mashni. Should or shouldn't the 1948 Palestinians vote in elections and why? These are presumably people in um, Jordan and elsewhere outside of Palestine? No, I think that comment is referring to Palestinian citizens of Israel, the Palestinians in the 48 territories who have citizenship and are technically permitted to vote in the Israeli elections um, of the the political camp that boycotts the Israeli elections. I have Israeli citizenship and I uh, refuse to, to take part in those elections for two reasons, namely, firstly, because I do not want to legitimise the Israeli colonial regime over any any part of Palestine, but also part of a, a political tactic. If we look over the years, over the decades, what has been achieved through the, the Zionist Knesset in terms of Palestinian liberation, it's not only very limited, but also there's only so much that Palestinian citizens can achieve through that particular political path. And I think actually it's to the detriment of the Palestinian struggle because the Israeli regime is able to use it to to show or uh, to demonstrate that it's not an apartheid regime because it has Palestinian or rather what they call Arab because they deny Palestinian identity, Arab members of Knesset. And so they can use that as a way to say, you know, we're not an apartheid regime because we actually allow, because good for us, we allow Arab Knesset members. So I think it's actually an ineffective political tactic uh, to take part in these elections. I think it's much more effective for Palestinians to organise outside of them. At the end of the day, the problem is not with the Israeli government, it's with the Israeli regime itself. So it doesn't matter what political party is in power. The Israeli regime is premised on apartheid and settler colonialism, and that can't be challenged in the Israeli Knesset. There are a lot of questions. I'm trying to work through them. (laughs) There's one. Thank you for your lecture. Are all of the new Israeli settlements in Palestine resisted by the Palestine administration? Are there examples of where Palestinian resistance has stopped new settlements? The Palestine administration, which I assume here the person is referring to the the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority does not resist uh, settlement building. It's a administrative body that was established after the Oslo Accords to manage the Palestinian populations in Gaza and in the areas A of the West Bank. So these very small bantustans um, in the West Bank, not even all of the West Bank, and it does not have sovereign control 
over the West Bank. It only has partial control over the population's administrative control. So the Palestinian Authority is not in the business of uh, resisting settlements. The Palestinian communities themselves are consistently resisting against settlement expansion. Various communities across the West Bank, including uh, in the South Hebron Hills, including uh, Beta, including Nablus, Janine areas, all over Palestinian communities resist uh, settlement expansion. And in some cases, they have succeeded to, to protect their land and their communities from destruction, from uh, theft, uh, from violence by settlers. But this is an enterprise that is spearheaded by the Israeli regime itself. It's an enterprise that is protected by the Israeli army. And it's also an enterprise that continues with impunity from the international community. There are no serious efforts from the international community to prevent settlement expansion into the West Bank. And so in that context, it is incredibly difficult for Palestinians to, to physically prevent the expansion of settlements. And as we've seen really since Oslo, that more and more Palestinian land has been taken and has been swollen um, by these settlements. Our land is shrinking. And even when we do resist and we have small wins in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately, it's only getting worse. A couple about the Palestinian leadership. Thank you for an excellent presentation. With the demise of the PLO leadership, where is the new Palestinian leadership emerging? Is there a reconstituting of the PLO or is there a new mechanism emerging? The current leadership, the Palestinian leadership, is headed by Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the the PLO. Unfortunately, Mahmoud Abbas is an unelected figure. He is 14 years past his elected mandate. And even though the Palestinian leadership makes sort of nonce to, to holding elections and, and makes certain excuses why it can't hold elections, the current leadership is is not a representation of the Palestinian people, neither in democratic uh, legitimacy nor in political ideology. And so we've really seen Palestinian political leadership and its institutions become increasingly corrupt and, and even defunct. Reviving or reforming uh, the PLO is, is sort of sounds like a good idea and sounds, you know, like the way forward in theory. But the current leadership has no interest in doing that. Just to give you an example, the other day, Palestinian civil society members held a conference on the reform of the PLO and it was brutally shut down by Palestinian security forces. So there's very little space and very little safe space to discuss or to even enact that kind of uh, reform. It's not in the current leadership's interest to have a democratic Palestinian leadership, and it's also not in the interest of the international community or the Israeli regime uh, for there to be a leadership that is truly representative of the Palestinian people. Both the international community and the Israeli regime want a leadership, a Palestinian leadership that is compliant to them that will continue to cooperate in uh, security coordination with them. And so for the meantime, definitely, I don't, in the short term, I don't see any big changes with the leadership, even if uh, and when the current president dies, there will be a succession process in which the leadership will be handed on to the next chosen candidate, a non-elected candidate. There's another one. The young generation in Palestine has shifted to armed resistance, as we've seen in Nablus and Janine. 
recently. Do you support this form of resistance at this point of our struggle? I think it's problematic to ask Palestinians in Palestine um, that question because it can result in different repercussions, um, including arrest and imprisonment. I think it's important to note that under international law, occupied peoples have the right to armed resistance. And we saw indeed with Ukraine and Russia how Ukrainian resistance against Russian invasion and annexation uh, was glorified and supported by the West. And yet, uh, in the case of Palestine, it's uh, the opposite occurs and it is demonized. I think it's very clear that that kind of resistance, even though Palestinians have a right to resist under international law, it's very clear that it's demonized and criminalized by the, the international community. Is Israel succeeding in persuading Palestinians to leave Palestine and emigrate elsewhere? Particularly young this, yeah, this is a very sad reality, that, and, and it's really part of the long game of Israel, is to create such a difficult situation for Palestinians in Palestine, such an unlivable situation that many of them will want to leave. And, and we're seeing that really, especially for those who are able to leave, because, of course, you know, it's not as easy as, as some might think. Getting a visa or, you know, immigrating or applying for asylum is getting increasingly hard in this day and age. But those who can, you know, I think many of my peers are leaving for for a better life, for a safer life, for for more opportunities. And so that's really you know, the, the, the end game for Israel is to, to create such a unlivable situation for Palestinians in Palestine that those who can will leave and those uh, who can't will be so bogged down with basic survival of the day to day that there'll be no energy or space left to, to resist the settler colonial structure. Thank you for a wonderful talk, Yara. I think we've all been here. Do you have any tips for talking to friends, especially Jewish and Israeli friends who already have certain preconceptions from their upbringing about Palestine? It is such a difficult conversation. Yeah, it's a very difficult conversation because, you know, people, it's it's seen as such a polarising one. But I think one of the important things, and and this was something I talked about in the lectures, is de-exceptionalising Palestine and the Israeli regime. If you're someone who considers uh, yourself as a progressive, as on the left of the political spectrum, and you support, you know, fundamental rights for everyone, then I think supporting Palestine is not really a, a, a big jump. Uh, and I think, you know, drawing comparisons between the Israeli regime and other settler colonial entities, but also highlighting the settler colonial Israel's regime and how involved and embedded it is in impression globally, for example, weapons and security trade, I think highlights really what Israel is at its core. So I think those points are incredibly important when you engage with folks who are who have preconceived notions, who perhaps come from sort of liberal Zionist backgrounds or who have a sort of some kind of attachment to the, the Israeli regime. I think fundamentally you cannot consider yourself progressive if you don't support Palestinian liberation. And I think that's a a good place to start. Thank you. And another one. Do you see two states or one state? And if two, on the 1967 Green Line, if not, on what borders? I mean, I think I made it clear in the talk that I don't support a two-state solution. I think the PLO um, made a mistake um, with Oslo. And Edward Said wrote a brilliant article called The Morning After about what the Oslo Accords really were. And he saw it much before uh, many people saw 
saw it that this was really an agreement for further subjugation. But in at its very core, I don't support or would ever promote the partition of historic Palestine. I'm not one for borders or divisions um, between communities and peoples. And I think the two-state solution was a cop-out, a way to sort of solve something without really tackling the root issues to the Palestinian struggle, of course, one of which is the Palestinian refugees. I mean, if you think about the Palestinian refugees who are now well over 7 million in a two-state solution, they would not be entitled to return to their homes of origin. You know, the two-state solution also doesn't address what would happen to Israel, which is inherently an apartheid regime. It would continue being an apartheid regime in a two-state solution. So I think there are a lot of unanswered questions um, with a two-state solution, but I think for a world which enjoys borders and partition, it seemed uh, like the, the most logical way forward. But it's definitely not something that is compatible with my politics. One more from Charles. This is, first and foremost, thank you for your lecture, Yara. How important do you find the interlinking of struggles between marginalised and colonialised people, colonised people, in changing the current Israeli-Palestinian paradigm? I ask this as a dual African-American-Australian citizen who has over the years witnessed a significant increase in expressions of solidarity between Palestine Palestinian and African-American peoples and causes in particular. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that these connections and and links are made. Palestine is not going to be liberated in a void. For Palestine to be liberated and for us to see an end to the the apartheid regime, a lot of things have to change around the world. Uh, Power imbalances, a lot of politics. If you look at Europe, at the moment, it's shifting heavily towards the right. It's becoming increasingly fascist. And this is not a politics that, that is friendly towards Palestinian liberation nor other people's liberation. So the point is, is that, you know, for, Pal- for Palestine to be liberated, we have to see politics shift massively globally. It's not going to be liberated on its own. It has to, it's going to be liberated in a global shift in politics. And so that's why, you know, when people talk about feeling overwhelmed um, when it comes to Palestine, not knowing what they can do. You know, really focusing and working on local politics is as important as doing Palestine solidarity work, changing your local uh, governments, your your national governments to to ones that are adopt a politics of supporting fundamental rights, of supporting uh, liberation struggles is is crucial. And we're not going to liberate Palestine here on our own if all of Europe is is still fascist. What we're seeing in Latin America is exciting. The sort of the shift back towards the left uh, to governments that are very supportive of the Palestinian struggle, such as in Chile and Brazil, that we have to see more of that happen. Yara, there are a couple here on the BDS movement. One is, um, again, thank you for your inspiring talk. You've really... You've really touched people. Could you please comment on how effective has the BDS campaign been to date in progressing us closer towards Palestinian liberation? And might just ask the other one because it's the first to what you've spoken about. You mentioned the USA views Israel as an asset, a bulwark in the Middle East. What is the most effective way to convince the US that it isn't an asset? Is it the international BDS movement? So I think the BDS movement has... And, you know, had some really incredible wins 
in a lot of different areas. Um, divestment uh, put pressure on uh, many companies to divest from uh, Israeli apartheid, and they've been successful in that. The mobilization on campuses around the world between students and academics who have boycotted complicit Israeli academic institutions. So there have been a lot of wins, and I think as a movement, they're growing from strength to strength. And I think it's in, the BDS movement is incredibly important in the Palestinian struggle for liberation. And, it, you know, it puts pressure on in the right places. It adopts, you know, the anti-apartheid struggle framework, um, which was very successful in the case of South Africa. So I think there are a lot of wins there. But I also think, you know, much more has has to happen. We have to see policy shifts, global policy shifts from a government level to hold Israel accountable for its crimes against the, the Palestinian people. And so I think uh, in the US, for example, while, you know, BDS is incredibly important in the US context and is is having some wins, I think it's also incredibly important that people do uh, local politics work. The US government, even with, a, you know, we've seen the Democrats, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, Israel is a bipartisan issue. They received bipartisan support. Um, so it's about fundamentally changing U.S. politics. And, you know, the U.S. is a case in point. The U.S. is a settler colonial regime. So you're asking a settler colonial regime to end its support for another settler colonial regime. And so I think there's a lot of internal politics or a lot of internal things in the U.S. that have to be reckoned with before it becomes, before it will ever stand in opposition to Israeli apartheid. It has to reckon with its own history of settler colonialism, which, of course, it has not done. Just to conclude on this point, I think, you know, the BDS movement is incredibly important. People should get involved, but so is local politics and so is changing politics in the areas in which you live in and investing in your communities and working with your communities to talk about Palestine and include it in a, this sort of progressive and, and radical package of, of politics. I think a bit more on a positive note, and I've noticed this myself, and you've mentioned it about a remarkable optimism. But this person asked, I was inspired by Colin McCann's novel, excuse my pronunciation, A Paragon, which mentions Palestinian and Jewish families who have lost children to violence, meeting together and finding common ground. Is there much of this collaboration taking place? That The notion of common ground is, is a difficult one. Um, I think, you know, when you have a regime, a settler colonial regime, that where its colonisation is, is ongoing, and the oppression of Palestinians is ongoing, and many people within that regime are complicit in that oppression. Um, so finding sort of common ground, I think, is not the stage we're in. I think that comes in a sort of post-conflict or post-apartheid uh, era, and that's what happened in South Africa, you know, once the apartheid regime ended. Um, that is when reconciliation efforts happened. And I think I think the same would be applied here. I don't think you can have uh, reconciliation whilst the the abuse and the oppression continues. And so I think, you know, the focus uh, has to be for Palestinians, certainly the focus not on that, but rather on internal politics and looking at how to mobilize Palestinians um, in this incredibly difficult context and how to rebuild those those uh, internationalist links because we are in this global situation. Palestinians are not 
we're not so self-centered to think that this is the only thing that the world should care about. We are in a very difficult, globally, a very difficult situation where people are, are suffering from the nasty, you know, the nasty consequences of capitalism, the nasty consequences of, of climate change. And all of these things are related. And so Palestine has to be has to be part of that discussion as well, where we're talking about a world that is just for everyone where you know the the working classes and and those in the global south are are suffering because of a very small minority of people in that context we have to find as i mentioned earlier we have to find those spaces of of joy and hope and i think it's it's about coming together around a certain politics around a certain politics that that embraces the liberation of of the Palestinian people and i think in those spaces the kind of common ground we should be looking for. Thank you for your very insightful presentation, Yara, on, on many levels. And also we want to assure you that things are moving and happening in Australia. Our um, new government is, um, we believe, moving towards some action. It's doing that slowly with its uh, decision to reverse the, you know, the decision on the previous government on the uh, Jerusalem embassy. We're hoping the next step will be recognition of Palestine as a state. But be aware that you have, or Palestinians have, a great number of supporters in Australia. We had a um, a poll before the previous um, election in March, or May it was. It showed that the majority of Australians are aware of what's happening in Palestine and they want their government to do something. So... You know, we are moving and we are agitating and advocating for that. So you have a lot of support. The Palestinian people have a lot of support in Australia. And tell your friends that. And I, I just think it seems strange to not to acknowledge and show our appreciation in the normal manner. And I think, you know, you'd have a standing ovation. Um, the comments on our, you know, preceding these questions have just been about inspiring, wonderful, insightful, just all those words that you deserve. It was a fantastic talk. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure to have someone as esteemed as you speaking. And the last person you heard speaking was Edie Branby, who's the chair of AFOCA, Australian Friends of Palestine Association, who present the yearly Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture. And, of course, the one this year was Dr Yara Harari, Palestinian academic and writer. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. The Malaysian elections were held on Saturday the 19th of November and early results pointed to a hung parliament. Soon after, I spoke with Socialist Alliance activist and Malay-Australian Peter Boyle and following Peter, we'll hear from another Malay-Australian, Lee Tan. This interview recorded following the announcement that long-term opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim had gained enough support to form the next Malaysian government, what he called a unity government. But first, Peter Boyle in the days following the election. Well, in this election, there were three major coalitions that were contesting. First of all, Barisan National was the ruling party for 60 years until it lost the previous election in 2018. And that's uh, led by AMNO, which is uh, the biggest party in that coalition. And secondly, Pakatan Harapan, or Alliance of Hope, led by Anwar Ibrahim, which was the, the big contender party that won the previous election on the back of a huge, you know, many years long democracy movement called Birthday, some listeners may recall. The third coalition, Perikatan National, which means National Alliance, as distinct from National Front, is a relatively new formation that came out of a 2020 split in the Pakatan Harapan government that was elected in the previous election. It uh, entered this election as a major contender. Now what happened is that none of those three coalitions, Pakatan for short, uh, Anwar Ibrahim's, Barisan for the old gang, and Perikatan, neither of those three obtained a 112-seat simple majority that's needed to form government. So that's the basis of the hung parliament. But the most important thing, I think, and, and the thing which I guess has surprised most pundits here, is that this election was a snap election. It was called early by the government, which was a Barisan national government, in the hope that it could regain not just a majority in the uh, elections, but possibly a two-thirds majority, and they hoped that 
this hope was on the basis of two state elections that had been held earlier this year where they did quite well and they were hoping that if they can get this two-thirds majority, they could stop a punishing process of court cases that its leadership has been going through. So your listeners might be aware that uh, Najib, a former prime minister from Barisan National, is now in jail. He's been jailed for 12 years on just uh, some of numerous corruption and uh, money laundering and fraud charges that have been leveled at him, coming out of a huge scandal about the misuse of the state sovereign fund called 1MDB and, and other corruption cases. And other senior leaders, including the president of AMNO, the leading party in Barisan National, is also facing some 40-something charges. Numerous leaderships from that old guard are about to be jailed, possibly. And so they were hoping to go to an early election, and if they could get a big majority, perhaps they could uh, put in a more friendly attorney general, you know, they could change the laws or whatever, end this, this process. But it was a total upset for them. The electorate punished Barisan National in a big way and voted them down. And from being the ruling party for 60 years and then the second biggest coalition in the last election, which Pakatan won, it was reduced to third place. And the biggest beneficiary of this punishment of Barisan was the new coalition Perikatan. And the party within the Perikatan alliance that scored the biggest vote was the Islamic Party of PAS, which has traditionally been seen as a party which has a certain base in the more socially conservative eastern peninsula, northern eastern peninsula states of Kelantan and Dranganu. But this time around, their candidates uh, managed to sweep across to other states. Many of, of the uh, West Coast seats on Peninsular Malaysia, from the top to the bottom, were swept by their candidates. So the end result now is that you have a situation where the balance is this. Pakatan Harapan as a coalition has the single biggest number of seats, 81, but not enough to reach the 112. Second is uh, PN with uh, 73 seats, so fairly close. Barisan National has only got 30 seats left. So over the last days, there has been the usual scramble for, you know, realignments to try and get them out number 112 or more. Both the two biggest coalitions, Burikatan and Pakatan, have both claimed that they've got numbers. The formal process here now is that the matter goes, it's a bit like Australia in the Westminster type system. It goes to the king, in the case of Malaysia, to call upon the parties to show proof of who's got the numbers, basically, and then makes the appointment of the prime minister. Here's where it all gets a bit rubbery because, you know, you move out of constitutional rules to the area of convention. And I don't think conventions are very strong in Malaysia. And therefore, the king, you know, has traditionally exercised quite a wide discretion as to how to go about finding uh, a possible government with a majority. So he was supposed to make a decision on Monday. He said 2 p.m. Malaysian time Monday, everybody had to show what numbers you had, and I'll make a decision. The two main contending coalitions couldn't come up with their finalized figures. They begged for extra time, and it's, it's dragged on till to today. What happened last night at the end of the day, the king said, I think uh, Pakatan 
Anwar's Pakatan and Parikatan, which is now basically uh, led by the, the Islamic Party, PAS, they're the two biggest. They should join together and form a, form a government. And I don't think that, you know, sort of like neither of those two coalitions wanted to. So, to, well, we'll see what will happen. But, you know, you can imagine this, this, this result is sort of causing a lot of unease in Malaysia, particularly because the religious card seems to have come to the fore in a big way. Malaysia's religious breakup is sort of like 63.5% Muslim and uh, the next biggest Buddhism. And, but, you know, uh, so on, on a religious basis, it's quite a multi-religious country. I think many people in the non-Muslim communities are really fearful that um, if there is a Parikatan-led government, there will be an extension of uh, religious laws which have been introduced in states controlled by the Islamic Party, like Klantan, Tranganu, and the particular communities, of course, you know, have been attacked in this process, like the LGBTIQ community. They're extremely fearful. They could face massive discrimination, popular abuse and victimization if Malaysia's government was led by a more Islamic fundamentalist party. That's the big picture. And I guess you could say that a lot of uh, liberal and possibly some less liberal opinion in Malaysia, therefore, is uh, in favor of a Pakatan-led coalition. The trouble is that the, the next biggest group to form a coalition with is the old gang, the Barisan National. So there's a kind of a poison chalice type situation. The voters, particularly young voters, who came into this election in large numbers because that voting age was lowered to 18, and the rules were changed. So for the first time in Malaysia, you don't have to register an electoral roll. You, if you had a Malaysian citizenship and identity card, you automatically went on the electoral roll. So there were a lot of young people coming in. I think it was estimated that the under-30s comprise about a third of voters, particularly from rural constituencies, did vote for Islamic Party. In the cities, of course, there's you know, generally more liberal, Pakistan-leaning voters that they're so worried uh, about about this that they are now kind of like urging Anwar, well, actually Anwar is hunting himself, to form an alliance with Barisan National to form government. Currently, that looks like the most likely outcome, but this is not going to be stable. The current situation where Parikatan emerged in 2020 out of split of Pakatan came because uh, Anwar Ibrahim and Pakatan made an alliance with another Barisan national leader, former Prime Minister Mohammed Mahathir, right? He was a big figure, and Pakatan thought in the following its victory in the last election that it was dependent on its alliance with Mahathir, and Mahathir became the first Prime Minister. But unfortunately, that was a very politically unprincipled in 2020, and that's where Parikatan comes from. So you imagine now if we, the situation of the, of the lesser evil government in Malaysia now is going to be a Pakatan-Barisan national combination that might temporarily allay concerns about a shift to a more Islamic fundamentalist government under Parikatan. However, you know, if you've got to think about, you know, how these young voters have, you know, reacted against the corruption and the uh, enrich-yourself mentality of the Barisan national people. So if Pakatan goes in, in an alliance with these old thieves, the party of old thieves, there's a bit of a poison chalice situation there. And in fact, if this becomes the government, 
there's going to be a test very soon. One of the biggest, most populous states, Selangor, goes to a state election next year. And it's a state that has been run by Pakatan at the state government level for many, many years. You know, there could be a test there if, in the end, we have a government which is an alliance between Pakatan and Barisan. Pretty confusing, isn't it, a listener from another country? Ironically, one of the benefits of the whole kind of wave of the birthday democracy movement is there has been some positive reforms going through parliament in the last session, despite all the instability, despite the fact that we had three governments since the last election, starting on the Pakatan government, then split government formed by Barikatan, newly formed then with the support of Barisan National, then Barisan National in 2021 pulled its support and it became government. So the last, so we've had three governments in the last election. But all those governments have supported some degree of democratic reform. The recommendations have come from independent uh, reform institutions, included the, the, uh, the lowering of the voting age, the ending of the requirement that you have a separate electoral enrollment, which, you know, actually disenfranchised lots of people, etc. Not Not all the reforms have gone through yet. There's still reforms that are around gerrymander, still a big um, pro-rural gerrymander in the structure of the seats. In extreme cases, some rural seats could have only a third of the numbers of some of the most urbanized seats. And this tends to favor the parties that are basing themselves on Muslim Malay identity, uh, because unfortunately, one of the legacies of colonialism in Malaysia has been a, a racialized division between town and countries persisted. This came out of a British colonial policy of basically keeping the Malay peasantry as peasants and uh, using immigrant labor, I mean, over a long period of time, who have now become part of the Malaysian population uh, as mostly as the urban workforce. So this, this town and country divide, you know, actually uh, accentuates the racialization and now religiousization of politics. Some of the positive momentum from the democracy movement has come true in the form of some reform. So it's an incomplete process. And I think, you know, you'd have to say, if not for the democracy movement, even the possibility of the former prime minister, Barisan prime minister Najib actually being in jail for corruption was probably unthinkable. They, they got away with it for decades. Corruption, you know, outrageous corruption. Well, if you look at another side, you know, apart from, you know, electoral reforms and institutional reforms, there is a process of uh, upheaval that clearly is going on, perhaps in a confused and manipulated way. Because I guess you could say one of the positive sides of the vote in this latest election is that many of these voters, young voters in particular, are repulsed by the old methods of, of corruption and patronage and well, gangster-like politics that the, the old Barisan stood for, and, and they punished them, even if they did so by voting for Islamic Party, which cleverly presented itself as being a party that was anti-corruption and a party that was addressing the economic issues of the poor. You know, that was the general messaging. Ironically, its main messaging in election campaign uh, didn't focus on religion. You know, that was a minority issue. Uh, that was used, you know, in some of the negative ads, which were like uh, blaming Pakatan for being a party controlled by Chinese or Christians and Jews, even, you know, that was a sort of a, a nasty edge of it, but its main propaganda, the 
main propaganda of Brickatan, you know, focused on anti-corruption and on the economy. And one of the interesting things about this, you know, if you think of this as a, a socially conservative formation, it uh, apparently, according to pundits, was very successful in using TikToks. TikTok messaging got cut through to the young people in a massive way. And the TikToks, it's short verbal messaging, but with popular music. That's the formula of, of a TikTok. Some of the most successful TikToks had a sort of a semi-rat feel. This is one of the interesting things. One of the reasons why the Barasan called this early election now is that it's right peak in the middle of monsoon season. Flooding is worse, like in, in Australia, because of climate change. This means two things. Some communities, the most rural communities, you know, are really suffering from it. There's huge disruptions to work, to their livelihoods, to their homes being wrecked, etc. But also, man, a two-week election campaign was very hard to use traditional methods of electioneering. Some of uh, our friends from the Socialist Party in Malaysia ran a very small election campaign and had very modest votes. Said it was quite hard to campaign in the old way. One of the ways people campaign in Malaysia is they do walkthroughs of the big night markets. But the night markets were empty because of rain. There were only the stallholders there. If you let a box in rain, wash stuff away. Barisan thought that it was a clever tactic to do it in monsoon season because they lost the previous election with a very high voter turnout of 80%. As it turned out, voter turnout was, despite the monsoon season, quite high. It was about 73% overall around the country, though a lot lower in the eastern part of Malaysia and Sarawak and Sabah. So people were motivated to vote. The big point here is that lots of people were motivated to vote against the old guard, the Barisan National Coalition of uh, Corruption and Thievery. Can we talk about the Islamic Party for a bit, Peter? How important do you believe that will be in the near future? And you mentioned some of the reasons why people have reasons to be fearful. Islamic Party's gains between the last two elections are significant. In the 2018 election, they got 18 seats. In this election, they're up to 49. That's a big jump for them. Considered a regional party because most of their seats were in, in two states, in Trungano and Kelantan. But um, they basically wiped clean the northern states of Perlis and, and Kedar, and they started to knock out both Baritan and Pakatan seats in Selangor and in other states. They've extended their reach pretty much right through peninsular Malaysia, with probably the exception of the state of Penang, very urbanized, probably the, the lowest proportion of uh, Malay population. So they've definitely reached out uh, beyond the states they control in the last period, the last few years, been quite a lot of demonstrations targeting the LGBTI community, uh, reimposing public caning, for religious offences, including of women, that have really got a lot of concern up. To some degree, while they were only able to do this at the state level, they were constrained by federal laws, human rights conventions, the federal government supported. But what some people are afraid of is that, if, of course, if they have, if they effectively control the, the federal government, well, these barriers disappear. Most people are aware who followed Malaysian politics that one of the, the enemies of Pakatan have used the two sodomy convictions of Anwar Ibrahim to manipulate anti-homosexual prejudice in politics and that continues to be the case. This um, anti-gay strand of 
fundamentalist politics you know, has been weaponized now for some time. It's not just Islamic parties playing it, the Pakistan National has also. The three coalitions, they're all committed to neoliberal capitalist politics generally. There's nothing in the record of the Islamic party in the states they control. You know, they've been quite happy to accept the bribes of oil companies and, and, and logging companies, which are wreaking havoc on the forests. Pakistan Harapan, despite its image as a more left-wing liberal coalition, where it has been in government, and in Selangor, for instance, it has been identified with the interest of developers. They've carried out straight sort of pro-neoliberal lot of support of some of the poor people on the basis of that. And Barisan National, the same, it became notorious for deploying corruption and patronage using special rights of Malays as its main justification. And the, the author of that policy was Mohammed Mateh uh, back in the 1970s. In terms of economic policy, they're all neoliberal. In terms of social conservatism, it's actually quite hard to say whether Parikatan, which is with Islamic majority, is significantly actually more socially conservative than Barisan. They just have on their record Sharia law, and that's what's really scaring people who are from the non-Islamic communities. I've been speaking with Socialist Alliance activist and Malaysian-Australian Peter Boyle. Now to another Malaysian-Australian, Lee Tan. I spoke with Lee at the weekend, and the focus of this interview is the new PM, Anwar Ibrahim. I asked Lee to explain his background, both as a politician and as a person. Anwar Ibrahim is currently the 10th Prime Minister of Malaysia, but previously he has a long history, spanning maybe about 40 years in Malaysian politics, beginning as a, you know, at that time, perceived radical Islamic student leader through the Islamic student organization by the acronym ABIM at the University of Malaya. Subsequently, he joined the Malay-led political party AMNO, you know, ascended quite quickly, Prime Minister under Mahathir Mohammed. I think that was from the 70s right up to about 90s mid-90s, the end of 90s. And then he um, had a fallen out with Mahathir, or more like Mahathir refused to let Anwar Ibrahim succeed him and basically put Anwar Ibrahim into the jail through the Internal Security Act. And that's a form of detention without trial in Malaysia that's been used you know, repeatedly against political opposition people and also social activists. Yeah, so Anya was thrown into jail by Mahathir and then subsequently also all kinds of trump-up charges. One that's most notoriously known around the world and caught the attention of uh, human rights organizations is uh, when, you know, Anya Ibrahim was uh, alleged yeah, to have engage in uh, sexual misconduct as a gay leader. And, you know, in Muslim Malaysia, that kind of um, condemn, although, you know, those charges have never really been proven, 
but many of the evidence were fabricated accordingly. So he's been in jail several times under different governments. And then eventually, yeah, about seven years ago, he was released from jail and then returned to lead the political party, PK Katan Harapan Coalition. As a politician, did he get any special treatment when he was in jail those two times or the opposite? Actually, very badly treated. Um, he was tortured and uh, notoriously known for the blue eyes or black eyes that he got from when he was detained under the Internal Security Act. And his health suffered a fair bit yeah, during those detentions. And, and because of that too, it splitted the Malay voters in Malaysia from the more progressive and the racist, you know, Malay supremacy, UMNO-led party. Ibrahim PKR, Pakatan Keadilan Rakyat, which means People's Justice Party, uh, mainly consisting of, um, you know, more progressive and liberal Malays, uh, the non-Muslim in Malaysia, the Chinese, Indian, and every other races in Malaysia. And that kind of uh, started a slightly more progressive political movement in Malaysia, which is a good thing. And, and yeah, and condemn corruption and also uh, racism. And in some way, you know, do not support extremist uh, radical Islamization that's happening in Malaysia as well. More or less, Anya Ibrahim, yeah. How much support did he get? I know he has to form a coalition, but just support for himself. How much did he get? Uh, his party, you mean, or his coalition? His, pa- his party. Under the current election that has just passed in Malaysia about two weeks ago, Anwar Ibrahim is the leader of um, Pakatan Rayat, which is a coalition of hope consisting of uh, different, yeah, slightly more progressive political parties, including his own Chinese-leaning uh, Democratic Action Party, DAP, uh, Amana, which is um, a more progressive Islamic party in Malaysia. So that coalition in total won 82 seats out of the total of 222 seats in, in the Malaysian parliament. And because of that, uh, and other coalitions such as the National Alliance or something, or yeah, which kind of... Um, took power under a uh, palace, what we call palace coup in Malaysia, back in 2020 from the popularly elected coalition of um, uh, hope at that time. They won, I think, yeah, 72 seats. And UMNO and other parties won even less. But much to the shock of some Malaysian Islamic party that's kind of, you know, radical fundamentalist, actually 149 seats. And that's like the single political party that has the most seats in Malaysia, uh, predominantly, you know, supported by people in the rural area and also in the less kind of economically advanced state in the eastern part of the peninsula, Malaysia. Yeah, so with the 82 seats, 
the Coalition of Hope, uh, under the leadership of Anwar Ibrahim, has got the most votes, you know, basically the popular votes, but it, it hasn't got enough seats to actually claim a majority or form a government. And as a result, this uh, uncertainty, even though he's been declared by the, the Agong, he's one of the, the thousands, who is kind of the current king in Malaysia as the prime minister. So, you know, the, the future remained quite fluid for Anwar Ibrahim and his coalition. What are his, or what were his policies that he took to the election? Promise um, a strong government, strong and zero tolerance for corruption, and then restoring uh, the independence of the judiciary. Yeah, among other things. And also, you know, to try and to, to unite the country and based on a anti-racial kind of policy. So, you know, some of those promises are very enticing, particularly for the non-Muslim in Malaysia and the progressive Muslim in the country, moderate and progressive Muslim in Malaysia. And that's why, you know, his, his coalition was able to marshal the majority of the votes from the people. And also the voter turnout amongst the, the non-Muslim in Malaysia were highest uh, in comparison with the Malay Muslim, for example. When you say he promises to unite the country, why does the country need uniting? Well, in the last case, under uh, the Malay-led UMNO, Malaysia has been very much divided based on religious and the Malay supremacy policy or approach. Basically, UMNO, through the former coalition of Barisan National, the National Front government, which consists of the Malay Party, the Chinese Party, the Indian Party, and, and then later went into coalition with the fundamentalist Islamic Party part. They have basically used race and religion to harness rural Malay votes. As um, you know, listener might know, Malaysia consists predominantly of uh, Malay or Muslim Malay. Over nearly 70% of them are Malay. So in that sense, Amno past and all that has been using that kind of communal sentiment of racism, scaremongering voters that this country is going to be taken over by non-Muslim Malay. And in fact, just before the current federal election in Malaysia, the fundamentalist Islamic uh, leader, a party leader, actually went on public to say that it's better to have corrupt Muslim Malay in power than uh, non-Muslim, <laughs> which is quite scary, really, to have that kind of speech going around. And, and the country is divided. People are scared of, um, yeah, the the kind of Taliban-styled rule getting introduced progressively. Yeah, also the introduction of the Sharia law, which is um, the Islamic kind of court, you know, governing many issues now in Malaysia. And also the ruling party before was 
draconian rules on uh, what's kosher and not, you know, going to very petty details of what's kosher and what's not, whether or not, you know, including like having lift for people who are Muslim and lift uh, toilets and, and all that. And that kind of created a lot of fear among people that Malaysia is heading towards the more feudal-style Islam, kind of fundamentalist Islam way, and they're not happy about that. And that includes, you know, some of the more moderate, progressive um, Muslims. Which strand of fundamentalist Islam are they following in Malaysia? <laughs> I think a bit of a mixture of the, you know, what we see. What I think they call it Wahhabism or something. But it's a mixture and it's kind of blended with their own feudal values. So it's not exactly like what is practiced in in Saudi or in you know by the Taliban. Yeah, it's very much a male chauvinistic feudal Malay kind of strand of uh, Islam. And some of the Muslim scholars have been very critical of this approach of um, mixing, you know, the Islamic teaching kind of fraudulently with uh, politics in Malaysia. And unfortunately for Malaysia, there's no separation of religion and politics uh, or government in, in, in the country, unlike in Australia and elsewhere. So it is possible that if the, the fundamentalist Islamic party win more seats, they can introduce even more draconian kind of Sharia law to apply to everybody in the country. Yeah. Where does the king or the sultans fit into the scene? Well, this is a, a very interesting phenomenon that we have seen in Malaysia since 2020 when the so-called palace coup uh, occurred, where the agong or the king it's a temporary king that is appointed, I think it's every five years or something, by the Council of Sultans. In Malaysia, every state and territory has a sultan or a chief minister, and they form the Council of Sultans. And every five years, I think, they elect uh, one of them as the head of the sultans or the head of the country. But this is a, a constitutional monarchy system bit like the British system. And the sultans or the king is meant to be really just a figurehead with no political power beyond declaring, you know, the leader, like swearing in the prime minister and so on and so forth, like what's happening in the UK. But in Malaysia, in recent years, things actually change, especially in 2020 when... The, then the National Alliance went to the king to say that they have enough numbers to topper the popularly elected. Coalition actually intervened in that case to support the Coalition of Alliance, much to the shock horror of the country, and also accepted the emergency declaration, you know, although it was uh, under the guise of uh, the COVID pandemic. But it actually... Um, where the parliament's still running and functioning, you know, under strict COVID rules. In Malaysia, the parliament was suspended for months and months with no sitting whatsoever, with a lot of contracts for COVID 
measure handed out without any tender, without parliamentary scrutiny and so on and so forth. And also at, a, at the current time, the Malaysian king is from the state of Pahang. And that's where Najib Raza came from. They, in fact, they came from the same royal town of Pekan. And so there's been a lot of talk that it, it is really uh, something that Najib Raza, um, and he has been notorious for his transnational corruption involving five or six different countries, squandering money from the one MDB sovereign trust. So it's kind of quite convoluted and complex in that you've got some of these traditional feudal rulers and the politics of the day probably forming some kind of uh, secret alliance, not under the scrutiny of the public or the parliament happening to secure power, to protect each other's um, vested self-interest. What about the working class in Malaysia? And who are the working class in Malaysia? Well, there are many levels, as in many other places. But the real working class, the labourers in Malaysia, are really the migrant workers from uh, Indonesia, predominantly Cambodia, Nepal, uh, yeah, India, some of the poorer kind of neighbouring countries. And then you've got the kind of middle-income working class in Malaysia that may be working in the factories whatsoever. They, they mix bags of different people, really, but mostly... Uh, rural Malay and also urban Malay and also there's a big kind of plantation economy in Malaysia. Oil palm particularly and, and yeah, I think from the 70s they, under the new economic policy, uh, the rural Malays particularly were kind of supported to grow oil palm in Malaysia. So they became smallholders they're kind of like working class, but they kind of bonded to with uh, to a particular scheme to supply palm oil palm to the oil palm industry in Malaysia. Um, it's a bit like a bonded labor, but they don't see themselves as such. You know, it's being labored nicely as smallholders. So there's quite a number of that sort of scheme, and most of them are now supporting the Islamic Party because. Also, the Islamic Party has uh, what they call Islamic schools, where many of the young children are sent to this school, and many of the moderate Malay would say, oh, you know, they're being brainwashed by their religious teacher in this school to be racist and to pursue dreamist kind of view of Islam, etc., etc., so there's all kinds of issues like that that kind of culminated in fundamentalist Islamic Party getting so many so many seats uh, in the last election, and predominantly from the less economically advanced states in the country. Where do the Indian and Chinese communities fit into Malaysian economy? Traditionally, the Chinese are the small business entrepreneurs. But, you know, right now, yeah, they're still predominantly holding that small business, medium business entrepreneurship. Some of them are in league with the politically backed 
corporations. Yeah, basically going into partnerships with politically linked business people to form corporations. Yeah, they're very much still involved in that kind of traditional role. And in terms of the Indian, they either at the professional level as lawyers and doctors and, and administrators, or they are still, you know, working in plantation, large plantations as laborers. Maybe some of them could be supervisor, manager, depending on, you know, some of the old caste systems, which still operates in Malaysia in some ways. And, and some of them are public zones, but not many because of the quota system in Malaysia that's very, very true. Malay. So the Chinese and the Indians are not really in the public service sector, uh, with the exception of a few, very few positions. The Malay are predominantly working in the public service sector right now. Does that quota system also still work with the education system? Another reason why Australia has attracted so many non-Muslim students from Malaysia. They, most of them kept here. Because that's the only way, yeah, and including myself, you know, that's one of the few ways we could actually pursue higher education through our parents kind of working very hard, saving up money to send us overseas. You've talked about a lot about plantations. Where does support for the environment come into Malaysian politics? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, it comes from the middle class predominantly overseas educated people who have seen the environment movement, you know, rising in much more industrialized countries. And that includes, you know, countries like Taiwan and Hong Kong, Japan, and of course Australia, USA, UK and Europe. And many of them return to Malaysia and, um, yeah, and they try to also bring about the consciousness and awareness on environmental issues. I mean, that's, you know, from the grassroots perspective, but of course also at the industrial industry level, they, they've been more and more very chronic pollution problems. Where most of the rivers are so badly polluted, people are feeling it, and there have been incidences where people were affected directly and very quickly from very serious pollution issues. And, of course, you know, we've talked about the Linus rare earth problem with its radioactive waste. Although that takes a long time impact to be seen, but the quantity of waste, the massive amount of waste that's been generated, is highly visible. And that, too, adds to the anxiety about the environment in Malaysia today. Leitan, are you encouraged that there might be a period of of economic development in Malaysia quietened down now that few of the players are out of the scene, particularly in jail? Well, the thing is, the future is quite un- is rather an uncertain because the opposition parties and coalitions are quite aggressively trying to unseat or un- unsettle Anwar Ibrahim. So, you know, the challenges are there. And in terms of economic um, activities, unfortunately, it's not going to slow down um, in five years, partly because of the pandemic, but also because of the incompetence of um, the, the cool government. Malaysian economies actually suffer 
and also because of corruption as well, you know, from Najib's period. Uh, and even uh, subsequently, yeah, there's been so many cases of corruption referred to the anti-corruption watchdog uh, or commission in Malaysia, including, you know, many of the sitting PM, uh, Najib. So the country is actually in a little bit of an economic ruin with huge debt, kind of, um, yeah, responsible for by the previous government that's just been recently voted out. So in terms of slowing down, it's not going to happen. In fact, one of the things that the Anwar Ibrahim government, when it's formed, uh, has to do is to actually revive the economy. But we hope to, you know, um, institute some of the good environmental measures to start taking action on climate change, to deal with some of the pollution issues. I mean, that's like hope, and it's not going to be easily achievable because of a lack of majority in Anwar Ibrahim's government. But it, hopefully there will be some restoration of more evidence-based, science-based policy-making under this government. Um, and there are some really brilliant politicians and leaders in the Coalition of Hope under Anwar Ibrahim. So if they are allowed to do their work, they, are, they always hope. But if the opposition continue to do destructive things, then, you know, the country will be heading down, uh, continue down the downward spiral, really. And, of course, Anwar's not that old, really. You can say he's 75, but... Um they had a leader a little while ago who was in his 90s, didn't they? Mahathir was 92. And uh, although he promised to undo his past wrong, he became the PM just to repeat every wrong that he's done, including the nation of his own environment minister, um, you know, by allowing Linus to continue to operate and not to remove his uh, radioactive waste from the country. So, you know, <laughs> politics can be fluid, but I hope that ha- won't happen with Anya Ibrahim. Thank you so much, Lee Tan. And Lee Tan is an environmental consultant and, of course, an environmental activist. Many years standing. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.